Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, dear listeners. This is Kate Riga. I'm here to make a quick pitch that you consider becoming a TPM Prime member. TPM has used the member model for over a decade now, and our loyal members are the only reason we've been able to weather the turbulence of the media landscape and avoid the fate that has befallen so many other independent outlets. For $70, you get no paywall, fewer ads, access to the Hive member forum, a members-only newsletter, and more. For $140 a year, you get all of that, plus no ads at all. Without our members, there is no podcast, not to mention that I'm out of a job. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast with Kate Riga. We have a few topics that we're going to talk about today, but we had some pretty big news break, uh, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half ago. We are recording a little before 3 p.m. on Wednesday, February the 28th, and the news was that Mitch McConnell is going to step down from the Republican Senate leadership, stepped down from being the leader, currently the minority leader of the Republican Senate caucus. And I think that is, it's not shocking news. I think everybody kind of realized that was probably on on the horizon in likelihood that this would probably be, you know, his last Congress as leader. He's obviously relatively old and he's had those some health incidents that we've never quite understood uh, what they were. But he has, I think it's fair to say he has physically declined in a fairly marked way in the last year, 18 months or so. And and when I say that, I, I just mean, you know, he's he's more feeble than he, uh, he's more frail than he was. So it's not a, not a big shock, but it's still, as I, I think, I, I may have this wrong, but I, I think Kate said, maybe it was someone else in one of our chats said, when the news came out and we were discussing this in our, you know, in our office Slack chat, it's still a big thing when you see it. Because he's is, it, this is, this is one of those cases where you distinguish between there's whether McConnell is a good guy or a force for good, 
in in the political world. And uh, probably most of the listeners to this podcast have a kind of a dim view of that question. But there's also kind of like how much a, of a force was he in our politics? And he was a big big force. You know, there's, I, I don't even know where to start in terms of um, the consequentialness of his actions. You know, even some just basic stuff like the fact that we've got this Supreme Court hugely tied to Mitch McConnell. He was an expert at holding his caucus together and, you know, using it <laughs> as a force of destruction, let's say, or at least a, it's probably better to say, a force of gridlock. Because really that has in many ways been what he has been best at, been able to stop things that Democrats were trying to do, whether uh, during the Obama administration or during the Biden administration, and to stymie Democrats without paying any price, without paying any political price, right? Any Anybody in the majority, when they are facing a president of the opposite party, are going to be unpopular with the, you know, with the opposite party. And they can really, they can really gum up the works if they want to. That's not the hard part. Well, you need to keep your own party together right to do that but that's not the hard part the hard part is how do you do that and not pay a big price in time for the next election and the way you do that is you do it in certain ways where you kind of you're gumming everything up but you don't really have your hands quite on it and only people who are really paying close attention and understand the ins and outs of politics can really tell so McConnell's a big figure and I think the you know the one thing that people who listen to this show may be a little more either sympathetic to or a little more concerned about is that at critical moments he's been really the only force in the Republican Party in Washington DC who has never really bent his knee to Donald Trump and has been sort of like a you know, I don't want to say a force against Donald Trump because he empowered him in many ways. He helped him not get convicted of, you know, not get convicted at impeachment twice in a row. No one else ever had the chance to, you know, uh, evade impeachment twice in a row. But he was kind of at, at a limited level, a counterforce, which no one else has been. And that raises a lot of questions about what comes next, uh, what you know who the who the next majority leader is, uh, how they will be a little negative there. Uh, who the next majority leader is or minority leader? In any case, Kate, you're up there. I haven't, I haven't, I can't even think of the last time I was on Capitol Hill. It's got to be, I mean, I, I it's got to be at least a decade. It may be closer to. I mean, it's been a very long time. But you're up there a lot. What do you What do you make of this? And what do you What do you make about what this means? What does it What does it mean to you? I mean. I think, you know, what I said in our kind of internal chat when this happened was uh, we all knew this was going to happen, but it's still, I mean, it's arresting to see, right? I mean, not just a dominant force, probably the dominant force in our politics, you know, for the past 20 years, maybe. I mean, mm -hmm. Especially under Obama, you know, the thing that kind of has always galled me about Mitch McConnell is that he 
was norm breaking way before Trump came along, but still got to kind of keep this mantle of, you know, an institutionalist, a creature of the Senate kind of thing. When, you know, the the obstructionism, you know, that all came from him, that whole uh, my sole aim is to make Barack Obama one term president. And that bled into everything that came after, you know, the theft of the Supreme Court seat, which he still calls, you know, one of his greatest accomplishments. So that has always kind of perturbed me about the way that he's seen. And I was a little worried that when this happened, we would get a flood of accolades from Democrats. The um, last old fashioned Republican kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The the ones who are just so beholden by Senate brain that, you know, they've seen this guy in the hallway for forever and would say, you know, we might not see eye to eye, but respect for these hallowed halls kind of thing. And and we've only had a few of those before we kind of jumped on and started recording. I was... um, happy to see that Schumer's was pretty mean. It was like, uh, we don't really agree on any policy. Um, Basically, like it's been a hard year for his family. I wish him well, but the brunt of it was, it was pretty (laughs) mean. Um, Yeah. Right. So that's one thing. I think the other piece is just, if there was a chance of kind of recuperating his image in the eyes of people who rightfully see that he has really broken governance in a really fundamental way, like really single-handedly, you know, made government a less effective tool, was the Trump era. Because like you said, if there's one thing that I think you can like about Mitch McConnell, it's that he's pretty clearly really disdainful of Trump. He doesn't like him. He's not as in his thrall as everybody else in his party. But the thing is, Shit talking Trump in in private and kind of giving us these secondhand off the record accounts of how he really he doesn't like him and he thinks he's a toddler and, and, you know, spoiled and all the rest. I mean, what good is that compared to what he could have done, which is especially the second time after January 6th, when he was pretty candidly disgusted by the whole thing. There was that window, which we've talked about on the show before, immediately after the attack, where things could have changed, where Republicans could have turned against Trump decisively. And I don't think it would have taken much. And I certainly don't think it would have taken more than McConnell saying, I'm done. He is a traitor to our democracy. I am not going to be, you know, one of the the figureheads of a party that is kind of protecting him under our auspices anymore. The Democrats want to impeach him and I'm all for it. And that probably would have ended up with Trump being convicted because that that time was so vulnerable before people had kind of gotten into their camps. And, And McConnell still does have less now than before, but still sway over his caucus. You know, he he could have he could have gotten it done. And he chose the coward's way out. You know, he in his kind of omnipresent calculation was too scared to risk the the genuine electoral banishment that probably would have happened after doing something like that to the figurehead. You know, I mean mm-hmm. it would have the party would have had to find some somebody else to rally behind. I mean, they would have had to kind of grapple with the policy void that has, you know, grown at the heart of it for the past few years, figured out how to attract people other than just using fear as a stick and and grievance policy as a stick. And that would have been hard. And that probably would have meant, 
you know, a period of democratic dominance. And he made those calculations and decided that they weren't worth it, that he would rather keep his wagon hitched to Trump, even though he was completely clear eyed about the danger that he posed to, you know, to his party and the country. And so I, I mean, that to me is his that in the courts, that's his lasting legacy, right? And it's one of cowardice and it's one of kind of self-preservation. And it's it's certainly not anything that we have to kind of go around lauding his, his institutionalism when that's the note he chose to go out on. Absolutely. I mean, I think t- to me, the issue is it is worth recognizing how effective he was over such a long period of time. And that's not a that's not praise or lionizing. That is just, you know, kind of recognizing the reality that you live in. And, you know, to, to me, that, you know, that Supreme Court seat is a stolen seat, shouldn't be in their hands. It was done illegitimately. When you mentioned, though, about norm breaking, it's an example of McConnell's style of norm breaking, which is he wasn't up there saying, you know, what I say goes, you know, he he came up with this, you know, kind of absurd rationale, you know, explained it as this is just what how we've always done it. You don't do, you know, and he took the fact that there is some precedent for if a Supreme Court seat becomes vacant, like in, you know, September of a presidential election year, you're not going to get to that before, you know, probably, unless you want to, right? (laughs) Which they did two years later, or uh, four years later, four years later, yeah, about four years later. But he, he was much better about much more effective in breaking norms, because he didn't make a lot of fanfare about it. He just took what he wanted. And, you know, and there was another version of that with Barack Obama, where, you know, the the whole, in some ways, uh, you know, we can't, McConnell's tenure is, you can't separate it from the hyperpolarization of US politics. What I was what I was going to say is that McConnell under Obama really created something fairly new, even though there was the beginnings of it in the 1990s uh, under Bill Clinton, where you just have this kind of like we are not going to allow you to bring anything up. We're going to stop it. We're going to we're going to make it that you cannot pass any laws, even though you're in the majority. Um, and we're going to make you seem uh, helpless and ineffective and and impotent. He took that to an entirely new level and normalized the use of the filibuster as a default for even the most basic of legislative business. Again, there was some of. We had the first round of that in the 1990s with Bill Clinton, but much more under Barack Obama and obviously now to the point where you actually have a lot of the sort of DC Mandarin class and the people on the Sunday shows and everything treating it as, well, in the Senate, you need 60 votes to pass a law. And not really. I mean, that's never how it actually was. It was this pretty rare thing that happened sometimes. Again, 
you can't separate that from the increasing polarization of U.S. politics. But Mitch McConnell played an important role in creating that polarized era of U.S. politics by making it seem normal that, of course, you don't let anything even get to the floor unless it has 60 votes. And that if you don't play that game, you're a rhino. You're not even really, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. So it's a, he has been a very effective, very talented force for, in almost every case, bad ends, I think is how, <laughs> how I would put it. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I'm, curious about now and the only thing that would make me regret McConnell leaving is that still even kind of under Trump's sway Senate Republicans are different than House Republicans they're still have a bit more respect for the institution they still you know generally are more interested in passing legislation you know we've kind of seen from all the stops and starts with funding the government in the past few months and the speakership stuff that they are pretty open about the fact that they think their House peers are pretty extreme and pretty dumb. And, you know, they'll make fun of Marjorie Taylor Greene and kind of all the rest. It's still different. And that's really important, honestly, because in order for there to be any productive legislating, like one of the chambers has to be kind of dependably grown up to make that happen. And then it still might die in the other one. But at least someone is kind of you know, writing the legislation and starting the process. And my concern is that as the entire Republican Party becomes ever Trumpier, we're already seeing this dynamic in the House where kind of all of the adults in the room who are interested in doing the work of governing are leaving in droves. Yeah. You know, we've yeah. seen so many retirements. And to some extent, I think that's inevitable in the Senate. It's happened a little bit more slowly because Senate terms are longer. You know, it's harder to win a Senate seat. You need to have some kind of statewide appeal. You can't just kind of be a psycho in an R plus 20 district and then win the seat. Um, You know, it's more expensive. There's all those kind of institutional things that make it harder to win a Senate seat. So that change is happening more slowly, even though it's happening, right? I mean, all of like pretty much the young guys in the Republican Senate caucus are Trumpy, are much more MAGA-y than the older ones. Um, And to... You would think that with enough time as those older, more like out of step Republicans get weeded out of the party, either voluntarily through retirement or because they don't want to go through the process of fending off, you know, consistent primary challenges from the right as they leave. And as the MAGA contingent takes over, you know, barring some like huge dynamic change in the Republican Party, the Senate will go more the way of the House. And with, you know, as we we talked about the filibuster, like the the Senate already has this like special huge veto point. So it's already it has obstacles to getting things done. And if you've got more of the kind of burn it all down caucus infiltrating the upper chamber, that's going to be a huge issue. You know, that's going to kind of stop what legislating there is in its tracks, um, as soon as the 10 to 12 Republicans who occasionally will vote with Democrats on stuff as, as soon as they're gone. And I think McConnell, as much as, you know, 
we think he's been done tremendous damage and has kind of enabled all the forces that are rising on the right now. He is still, despite his obstructionist resume, he's still kind of of that older school of Senate Republicans where you know, he wants to hurt Democratic presidents for sure. You know, he, he's not going to kind of get on board with anything that Democrats see as a platform plank or like a big win for them. But, you know, he wants to like aid Ukraine, you know, or he'll get together on maybe like the infrastructure package, something kind of more fundamental. So if you lose even that, then it's just, I mean, where are we? You know, how does anything get passed through Congress unless Democrats have full control? And, and that's, you know, are, are there's going to be the only bouts of legislating we see? Like whenever they manage to win all three, it'll be like 2022 again. And we'll, we'll kind of see this burst of legislative activity. And then as soon as Republicans take one or the other chamber, it's back to, you know, drag out fights just to fund the government. Yeah, I I think you know the the one thing Mitch McConnell basically is still in line with establishment post Cold War U.S. foreign policy, NATO, the sort of the network of alliances that the United States has in East Asia. You know those basic things that you know Ukraine is basic as we know, basically downstream of of those commitments. I think the way I would think about it is that under uh, McConnell's management, and it's really a question of whether something like this will continue after him, that it is a highly, highly obstructionist institution. But when there's something that both Democrats and Republicans want to do, and you know, Ukraine aid has base has basically been that um, some version of a big infrastructure bill. When there's one of the or or just you know passing appropriations bills. You, you know, when last year when we were hung up on what was it? It was um, Patty Murray and the senator from Maine who Susan Collins, Collins, yeah, who were kind of working through that. You need to pass your appropriations bills. You just you just got to do that. So on things like that, they will do those things. What they don't have is the thing of uh, kind of all of us in the House actually want to do this, but there's like nine dudes who don't. So we're not going to do anything. That's the basic difference. And so there is in the House for a whole series of institutional and ideological reasons, there's a a level of burn it down obstructionism. Like we're not even going to do the things we want to do because who knows why? Because because something, because Chip Roy something. In the Senate, when they both realize they want to do some version of something, then it can happen. And uh, yeah, th- those are the those are the differences. And and who knows whether the institutional character of the Senate will keep some version of that going after you know after McConnell. His term goes two more. It goes two more years after. Am I am I right? Yeah, that's okay. right. So presumably he'll be sort of like a. I was going to say elder statesman, sort of a. <laughs> duplicative <laughs> point at this point, but there you go. Yeah. I mean, the other thing on this topic is, you know, I kind of opened this by saying that was my only concern with McConnell leaving. But I do want to make clear that if the Senate goes that way, if enough kind of MAGA people get put into those seats that we do have 10 people who want to burn it all down and and kind of prevent anything else from getting done. I don't 
think that McConnell is so powerful that he could have prevented that. I mean, to some degree, we saw that already, right, with the whole border slash foreign aid package. He wanted to Mm -hmm. pass it. He was going around in public telling reporters, now's the time. It's the best window to get immigration legislation done. Trump said no, and it died, right? I mean, his power is already waning in the Trump era. I think part of this decision to step down is reading that writing on the wall. So, you know, it's not just that him leaving, I think, will prompt this MAGA takeover. I think it's He's leaving because it's happening. Exactly. So. And and I think it's also, and this is, I think you'd, you'd have a better sense of this than I would, but it's also clear that his increasing physical incapacity has nudged that forward. He's just not the he's not the force that he that he was even a year ago or eighteen months ago. There's there's three three other members of the leadership, each of whom wants a shot at replacing him. And as they kind of you know swirl around, waiting for the moment, they're commitments and their loyalties are flowing to themselves rather than him and all those things. You know, it's a little, I don't know, be dramatic, but there's a little Macbethy sort of <laughs> sort of air to the whole thing. I mean, you can only, you know, freeze in front of cameras at a press conference so many times between before the muttering starts to get a bit louder. And, you know, if this is happening in public, you know, it's happening in private. So I think all these forces kind of are coming together to push him into making this decision. Yeah, but, no, it's, it's, it's in, in some ways, it's almost surprising. To, it, it is a testament to his power and also to the, not even sure I would say respect, although although it is respect, how much the Senate caucus, they, they believe in him, that he has, you know, he's brought them all the nice things, basically, that he has been, was able to withstand the, those incidents as long as he has. So there you go for Mitch McConnell. More of this scintillating content after these messages. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back to the show. Yep. Okay. So now we're going to talk about uh, the primary last night in Michigan. We're also going to wrap in South Carolina, which happened on Saturday. So post our last uh, recording. So in Michigan last night, the kind of, I guess, primary storylines on both sides. For Democrats, it was that there was this movement to organize a an uncommitted vote as a protest vote for the way that Biden is handling the um, Israel-Hamas war. And this 
is particularly salient in Michigan because it has the biggest Arab American community in all of the United States. And there was a lot of, I mean, we, we kind of, we've seen this like flurry of speculation a lot of times. Like, you know, at first it was, was it going to be Dean Phillips? And then in the subsequent contest, it was, you know, in New Hampshire where, where Biden didn't really run, it was, oh my God, is he going to get beat by one of these kind of you know, B teamers, and then they did a last minute write in campaign to make sure that he didn't get, you know, kind of embarrassed. Yep. Um, and then this was the story this time. And, you know, we'll get to the Republicans next. I think the storyline there is a little bit less interesting. It's, it's just what it continues to be, which is, you know, can Nikki Haley kind of break into Trump's vote share at all? Can, tr- can Trump amass any greater support than he has in the first couple states? And we'll go back to the Republicans. But, you know, for the Democratic side, when all was said and done, I think uncommitted came in what about thirteen percent? Yeah, um, right about thirteen percent. Which was not nothing because the turnout in Michigan was like fairly high compared to especially the other states that have voted so far. And it, God, there the number of like contradictory takes I that I saw this morning were I think kind of unprecedented in this cycle. You had a camp of people saying. 13% isn't really anything, you know, and, and kind of harken back to old elections. Like, you know, there was 11% in Obama round two when it was pretty, cl- you know, when he was obviously the incumbent, um, that there's always, you know, and that there was this kind of fulsome campaign. And nevertheless, you know, they only got to 13%, uh, just a couple points higher than probably what is like built into the system, right? Um, that's the kind of like, everything's fine, don't worry about it, Biden camp. And then the opposite camp is, well, raw vote totals are a little different. Turnout was about three fourths of what it was in 2016, where there was in, you know an active competitive primary in the state. You don't want to play games with Michigan at the best of times, right. you know, there's right. no path to the White House that doesn't include Michigan. So, you know, uh, this degree of discontent, even if it's numerically kind of small is concerning and and you know not least because it's coming from uh you know muslim americans and arab americans and and young voters all of whom biden will need to win again so i think those are kind of the two main positions coming out of last night i think i am in the camp of probably in between in terms of i didn't see a number last night that made me panic for Biden. And I thought there was like a little bit of a chance of that going in. That being said, I think brushing this off as no big deal would kind of be to his peril. Because first of all, I just you don't take anything for granted in the swing states. Second of all, I don't think what they're mad about is unreasonable. I think it's and I think it's okay to kind of lodge a protest vote like this. In some ways, it's I think, pretty responsible to lodge it now versus at a time when it's, you know, Trump versus Biden and the whole thing is on the line. And in some ways, I mean, this is what you do. Like, this is what you do if your candidate is doing something you don't like. The only power you have over him is your vote. So you say, I'm really unhappy and you might not get my vote in the general election unless you respond at the very least, respond to my concerns about how Mm -hmm. he's handling a situation that, to be completely frank, I think has changed from the beginning. You know, the kind of embrace of Israel, I think, made a bit more sense immediately post-October 7th than it does now when we're seeing the atrocities that are being committed. And, you know, you've got Netanyahu as the kind of 
blatantly bad faith leader of of that effort. Mm -hmm. And I think it's working. Like Biden, I think, is moving a little bit. He is talking about Palestinian suffering more and more. Uh, He had that like kind of weird little moment where he was getting ice cream with uh, one of the late show guys. And then he was like, oh, yeah, like there might be a ceasefire as soon as this weekend. So. Right. Right. So that's kind of where I come down. I think it's something that the Biden camp needs to pay attention to and be responsive to. And, mm-hmm. you know, my own kind of personal feeling is I think that kind of aligns with what's what's the right thing to do in this situation anyway. So I see it as kind right. of two birds, one stone. But that being said, it doesn't concern me as much as, say, a rallying around the uh, you know, the alternate candidates thing. Like if, if instead this protest had been like, and we're going to support Dean Phillips and all of a sudden he got like 25 or 30% last night, you know, this is right, like a horse right, of a right. different color to me. Right. Right. No, I think I, that is, I, you know, I, 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 I'm in a similar place. I kind of, I would probably explain it in slightly different ways, kind of come at it in slightly different ways, but I, I'm in a similar place on it. My overall sense is that I think both sides, to the extent we want to see this as sides, neither side got like humiliated, right? This wasn't like, you know, they had a mini version of this in New Hampshire and like nothing happened. Like it it was a total flop. Obviously, you know, Dean Phillips in New Hampshire was basically a flop. So it wasn't one of those things where sort of the, you know, the David versus the Goliath, it just, it's a flame out and they're humiliated. Certainly wasn't that, but it wasn't that on the other side either. I think both sides could kind of say, okay, we, you know, both sides, the result was one that both sides were able to, you know, come out of it holding their heads high, which is, I think for, um, for the thing that is the only, really the only thing that matters to me, which is the result in November, is probably a pretty good result for everyone concerned. And I think, you know, one point, and I had a, I, I think I think I wrote this yesterday, uh, yeah, I guess yesterday morning talking about what was going on. What they were doing here, you know, there's also this abandoned Biden movement uh, sort of under, I mean, probably a little, little much to call it a movement, a, a group under largely Arab American auspices that is kind of like, you know, we want you to commit never to vote for Joe Biden. Just like, you know, this is, we're willing to take Trump, blah, 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 blah. And this effort was quite specifically not that. Was basic, and, and I think one of the things that made it strong was that it included a lot of different things within it. You had certain people in it who were kind of saying, I don't know if I can vote for Joe Biden in November. And so we're doing this to kind of put you on notice, to show you how much clout we have and the risk you are taking if you don't make a big, decisive change. You had other people who were saying, I'm absolutely going to vote for Joe Biden but I am really upset about this and I really disagree with this and I really want this to change. And this is how we are going to express that in a, an electoral context. So that covers a lot of ground. But overall, it was even for those people much more on the anti-Biden side, the whole basis of the effort was not to say never. You know, this is we're doing this because we want to get to try to get to a better place by November. And that is certainly better than never to put it, you know, to put it mildly. And to a great extent, I think what they were doing was to create a kind of safe harbor 
for expressing opposition, expressing outrage, expressing anger, to kind of here is a, a context, a place that we're going to express that and, and shake up the apple cart without overturning the apple cart. And as you say, you know, we have to see how this all shakes out over time, but that is what you're supposed to do in kind of intra-party electoral fights. I mean, if if you come from the kind of politics that I that I see is kind of where I live, the one thing you can never do is say you're going to kind of, you know, take your marbles and go home. You know, kind of like, fine, I'm done. I'm going to let the bad people take over. That's just you just can't that that is to me that is like the ultimate political sin basically it's a kind of a purism and a an illusion that you can kind of pull up stakes and no longer be part of the world and it's not your problem anymore oh it's not my problem why am i obligated to do it well not obligated to do anything but we're all going to be living here in the same world and we're all going to have to kind of say what we did one you know one way or another and so to me that's the one thing you can never do and they were not doing that they were not doing that and that is really important and I've tried to keep that in mind to myself because, you know, I, I have my own set of personal and political commitments on this issue. And there are people involved on, you know, what we can kind of, I'm not even sure I would say it's the other side, but people who see this very differently than I do, who are out there saying things that I find, I can't even talk to those people at the moment because I, I am, the things they are claiming and saying are so beyond the pale to me. But Democratic Party is a big coalition party. And you're going to have people, you're going to have fights that are really, are really raw and angry. And you gotta, you have to always be looking towards, we still have these shared group of interests shared group of, of values and how are we going to kind of bring this around when it comes to, you know, defending those things that we care about. So anyway, important thing, big deal. I think that is, I think that's very important to recognize. W one interesting cleavage that I saw last night is that all the people I know who really get into sort of people who are not very ideological, but are basically numbers nerds, right? Looking at sort of historic precedents and stuff of what, you know, what, what would be good, what would be a success and what would not be a success. Those folks were kind of saying like 15%, 17%, you know, over that, it's a, it's a strong showing for, uh, you know, for uncommitted under that it's kind of underwhelming. Obviously it was under that. Then you have, you know, I was saying, looking at the analog of 2012, which is sort of like, the best analog we have, you know, second term Democratic president, blah, 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 11%, 13%. It's the best analog we have. Is there really any, uh, any analog? I mean, how many other times have we had, you know, youth slash Arab American uncommitted pro? I mean, <laughs> who the fuck knows, right? It's, it's very, it's very hard to say. And I do think that there was this I think the mainstream media was to a significant extent taken in by the uncommitted groups, incredible lowballing of what they expected. Like they expected to get like a kind of like 10,000 votes when like, like in the last one, 
like there was, what was it? Like in 20, there was 20, you know, 20,000 votes when actually there was no one even doing it. So that was absurdly low, 100,000. But then you had, but you had massive turnout. So kind of like going, there was this move to go from percentages to raw numbers because the percentages weren't working out basically. I think that is un- unquestionably the case. On the other hand, the the people from the uncommitted could say, look, there's 100,000 people who've come out and said they're not happy here. And this is a state that often comes within 100,000 votes. So that's so that's a pretty big deal. Like who cares what your percentages say? Like you know, our club is really big. So it it is kind of one of these things. I mean, look, if uncommitted had like come at like 5%, everybody would have to say like, okay, that just didn't work out, dudes. Like just sorry or 30% you know okay this is a big thing and it wasn't either of those things and because it wasn't either of those things i think that there are various reasonable ways to look at it i do think that again by historic standards it was a little underwhelming but did the historic standards you know uh, mean that much i do think the thing that I haven't seen discussed, and I actually think this is what happened, is you had a lot of attention to this to this effort, as we know. It was kind of the only thing to talk about since the Democratic primary is essentially over. One of the things that all people of goodwill could agree on last night was seeing Dean Phillips coming forth <laughs> behind Marianne Williams. Prompting right. Williamson to, to get back into suspend her campaign. <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, but since there's you know kind of nothing else to talk about, so you got this tons of press attention. They did get momentum. They were able to turn people out. But in response, you had this sort of normie-driven, no, you know, normie-dem counter-protest vote of turning out to show up for Biden. And that's the only explanation of why the turnout was so big because turnout was very high. It was almost as high as it was on the supposedly contested uh, Republican side. And that's how you could get, you know, around a hundred thousand uncommitted raw votes and have it only be 13%. So if you look at that, that is actually what I think people are not seeing enough is that that like normie dem counter protest is a pretty big deal and i actually talked to a number of readers last night i mean i don't you don't i'm not going on reader testimonials i think that is the only explanation of why the turnout was so high there was nothing like it in you know in 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 south carolina that is a lot of people saying in a election that i probably wouldn't even have shown up for i'm going to show up cuz not only do i support biden i want to make sure he's not kind of kneecapped here. So so I'm doing it. That's what I was going to say is that I think there is a big uh, silver lining for Biden from last night, which is none of the ones he's competed in so far have been that real, you know, like he didn't even run in New Hampshire at all. The turnout so far has been like super low. It is, and it's been hard to get a sense of where his support really is, you know, and we have 
the polling is so dire and we still are not really sure about kind of how approval level shakes out in an electoral sense, you know, what bearing it has. We've discussed this before that we might just be in an era now where presidents can't really get above 45% in approval, but obviously still somebody wins the election, right? So last night, huge turnout and he ended up getting like 81% of the vote, which is Tons, right? I mean, yeah. he had gotten ninety six in South Carolina, but that was a you know a fraction of the minuscule turnout. People. Exactly, yeah, minuscule so, turnout. Yeah. So I think that you could also look at last night. I mean, I think both things are true. I think like this is clearly not a non-issue, and it's something they're going to have to address, and I, I expect them to. But also. I'm not seeing the kind of antipathy towards Biden from last night's result that everybody keeps telling us is present in the party. You know, and this is something that I think we've kind of like sensed in a, you know, a, a vibesy, non-mathematical way for a while that people have never been super excited about Biden, right? Like he's not Obama. He doesn't have people like buying merch and, you know, he, he he's not like cool. He's not like going on two ferns with, with Zach Galifianakis. But you don't get 80% and turn out this high if everyone in your party is like tearing out their hair that they have to vote for you again. I just, I do think as you put it, there is this like normie contingent that likes Biden that mm -hmm. is, I don't know if they're going uncounted, but their voices are definitely being weighted a lot less than other voices who will also help decide this election. Well, one thing that came out last night that isn't in that sort of like, you know, that, you know, threshold setting you know, interpretation game about who, you know, who won and who lost and what's the standard and all that. It came out kind of late in the evening. And that was that there was a pretty big divide between the election day and the early vote that uncommitted did much better on election day. And the Biden people did much better in the mail-in vote, early vote. And where you saw that is that late in the evening, there was a lot of people were saying early evening, well, this is going to keep trending in uncommitted direction. Well, it wasn't true. It actually trended not hugely, but, you know, two or three points in Biden's direction. And that was because the election day votes got counted first. Now, that's interesting. What is it? You know, who knows what it means? I think basically what it means is that the Biden vote is that, you know, uh, more educated, more affluent, kind of the people who show up and vote every single time, basically, kind of regular partisan Democrats. And the uncommitted vote, a little less clear to me there, but I think part of it is that it was as much a college town vote as it was a Dearborn, you know, places of, of uh, high, high percentage of, of Arab American voters vote. But there, college students tend to be elect, more election day, election day voters, not as an absolute, but in, in, in relative terms. The Arab American vote is, it's, it's obviously certainly not all an immigrant community, but it is significantly uh, an immigrant community. Immigrant communities tend to be more, you know, same day, get people to the polls kind of stuff. So on the polling side, look, we don't know. We, uh, we don't, it's, it's, it, we, we don't know. But I, I, I think the theory of the case, if you want to have an optimistic view of the, of the current polls from a Biden perspective, is not that anybody is missing those people. 
is that the polls are picking up those people, but giving them as much weight as much more occasional voters. And those people are going to show up, absolutely going to show up. And and this is not my theory. This is It's certainly not a theory that everybody buys, but everybody recognizes it as one possibility. And that is that the current polls are overestimating the likelihood of voting from, you know, they, they, they talk a lot about that where Biden is having the biggest problem is on people who are not terribly connected to politics, right? They're kind of disaffected. They're not strongly partisanized, all that kind of stuff. And there is a lot you know the the democratic coalition certainly in this era the biden coalition the sort of the late obama coalition is a very civicy scene right we're all about democracy and process and i don't know all those other kind of you know goo goo kind of things and everything and that makes people who are disaffected people who don't care you know who don't believe in institutions who don't trust institutions that makes those people inherently a hard sell. But the flip side of that is if you're really disaffected, you just may say, fuck it. I, I'm not even, you know, not even going to vote at all. And that perhaps like incorrect weighting, you know, does make sense to some extent because pollsters are trying to wrap the people who vote in presidential elections and not any other time into these. But, you know, by virtue of who they are, I mean, like you said, they're less reliable. You know, you've got the the civic normies who come out to every single midterm and every special election and like to wear their I voted sticker. And, you know, I recognize them because I am one of them. And then you've got the people who just maybe tuned in for Obama, you know, maybe didn't vote in 2016, maybe came back in 2020, maybe didn't like that's that's just by that's a hard segment to capture, you know, despite any other kind of issues going on with the polls. Okay, so now let's talk about the Republican side of the ledger in Michigan, um, which even by virtue of this Republican primary didn't have a whole lot of interest, um, you know, because compared to South South Carolina was a little more interesting on this side because that's, you know, that's Nikki Haley's home state. That's where she was governor. That's where you'd expect if she is gaining any momentum, that's where it's going to happen. You know, she herself has been saying people in South Carolina, the voters know me, you know, the, the reporters know me. It's my home state kind of thing. Michigan is I don't think she spent a considerable amount of time or resources there, as far as I can tell. Um, You know, it's a little bit less interesting in terms of the electorate. Like South Carolina was interesting to me because it's like that's our first traditional MAGA state, right? Like 60 percent of Republicans are evangelical Christians there. That should be Trump's bread and butter. Um, You know, Iowa, New Hampshire, especially New Hampshire, are just like weird, a little bit weirder in the Republican Party. You've got particularly. New Hampshire, the strong independent streak. Republicans there tend to be much more, you know, Chris Sununu Republicans than Trump Republicans. Yeah. Um, the, the the ultra religious kind of Bible belty thing is not happening in those places like it is in South Carolina. So, uh, you know, from that front, she got what, just over 26 percent. But, you know, Trump didn't even get over 70. He got like upper 60s there. Yeah. So uh, Michigan is not super telling to me on the Republican side beyond 
Trump does not seem to be building on his coalition from state to state very much. You know, I think South Carolina in terms of this is a little bit more interesting because there, again, right, she's the hometown girl there and everything, but she got 40% and he didn't even reach 60 in a state like that that's made for him. Again, you know, she's an yeah. able politician and this is where she's from. You know, that is going to have some kind of effect, but he's not even getting that much more of the vote share in South Carolina than he did in, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire. And it's New like, Hampshire. what, yeah. what yeah. is going on there? I mean, this is a state that is cater made for him for all the reasons I said, but then even to, to the degree you have independence in South Carolina, they're, they're more conservative independents than they are in New Hampshire. And he's still getting demolished with them and with, you know, self-described moderates and people who think Biden won the election and like groups that, yeah, you can sail to a Republican nomination without winning, but you certainly can't win a general election without those people. Yeah, I thought there was, I mean, the result last night was certainly significantly closer to the percentages that Trump should be getting. Uh, I, you know, really stick to the argument that someone in Trump's position, former president, you know, really de facto incumbent, the race is already over. You should not be having a placeholder candidate getting 40%. That's a, when I say it's a red flag, doesn't mean Trump's going to lose, but that's a big deal. So this, that gets a little closer to the line of like, look, if someone's running against him, no one's, you know, you're not going to get 95%. That just doesn't happen unless, you know, you're running against like Dean Phillips or something like that. So he's getting closer to where he needs to be. I think there's, I haven't had a chance to see yet what the, you know, what the demographic breakdown is on the Republican side in Michigan. I certainly suspect that it will be like it was in, um, uh, like it was in South Carolina, where Haley is doing very well with, you know, affluent, educated Republicans who just are not into Trump. Again, that's that is a, you know, that that's 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 a real issue. Um, so, but it's certainly a better if you're. If, if I'm a Trump supporter, I look at those numbers last night and I'm like, okay, this is, we're getting there, getting a little closer to, to where we need to be. You know, Michigan's a, is, is a very different state. In some ways, it was obviously Trump won it in 2017. I think in key ways, it is much more of a, a 2016 era Trump state than it is now. And a lot, you know, there's a lot of different moving parts to this, but I think very broad strokes, you can make this argument that before Joe Biden, you still had a Democratic Party that was much more Wall Street oriented. There was significant degrees to which uh, Barack Obama was not that, but significant degrees to which he was uh, still much more tr uh, 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 free trade oriented, less, less strongly allied to organized labor than the Biden administration is. So that was, you know, Trump had more of an opening in a state like Michigan in 2016 when he was running against Hillary Clinton, who was Hillary Clinton, but also was to an extent Bill Clinton, right? And had the legacy of the Clinton in the 1990s. And, but for the Trumpism we know of 2020 and today, South Carolina is Trump, a heavily uh, racially polarized electorate, 
tons of of evangelical Christians. You probably, you know, kind of like overwhelming numbers of Republicans saying, you know, have an article of faith that Trump won the 2020 election. So I guess we'll get a, you know, one thing I think is that, you know, at least for a non-trivial amount of the time, Nikki Haley still had the, the Coke dollars you know, funding her effort in South Carolina, get on the air a lot, get on TV. Um, you know, Super Tuesday is sort of notorious for, you know, that's when, unless you are the established, unless you got tons of money, you cannot run in all those states at once, right? That's, that's an air war situation. You just can't do that. So I think on Super Tuesday, which I think is March 5th, am I right that it's, it's March, March 5th? I think so, is... That, that's going to. She's not going to be able to, to campaign in in all of those states. So there, I think we're going to see the much more unadulterated. What is the percentage of Republicans who just want to say no to Trump, even if they don't have anybody bad mouthing Trump on you know in TV commercials? So we'll see. But I mean, look, we we've always known Trump's the nominee. Um, we know that he has these coalitional fissures. They're ones that he was largely able to suture together in 2016 and mostly was not able to in 2020. And that's why he he lost those northern states. He lost Georgia. He lost Arizona. Uh, so we'll see. You know, it's kind of queued up. It's not, I don't think it's dramatically different than we thought. But, you know, there's, you know, we talk about these fissures in the, in the Democratic coalition. They're, I think it's just how it works in our politics that the fissures in the GOP have not gotten you know anywhere near uh, the play and and to a real extent they're you know the 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 Biden fissures are some of it is age driven a lot of it's heavily driven by Gaza and youth voters but there's there are significantly new dynamics to it from 2020 the stuff with trump it's it's part of the same evolution right these are the same issues he's dealing with in 2020 totally which is why you know i if i was in the trump camp especially kind of reading the exits and and finding out that nikki haley's approval within republicans has only kind of gone down since she started running full tilt at trump which shows you that the fissures are not because haley is kind of coming up as this unusually yeah. likable candidate. It, it really solidifies the fact that this is kind of a protest anti-Trump vote. You know, obviously Biden's got the age thing, but to the extent that at least, you know, last night, the fissure is because of a, a policy difference, right? Like they don't like how he is running foreign policy on this war. That is something that can and I think almost inevitably will change before the election, just, you know, by nature of the beast um, and by nature of you can change how you're you're doing policy at this level in response to that. The Trump stuff, the people and who it's don't- also, Can I just say one, okay. one, one point on mm -hmm. that really quickly? It's not just that you can change policy. The thing itself is a moving target. Right. It's not, it, it's, it's, it is already a very different situation than it was during October. So, and, and it is, it, it, it is in flux, but they, but they have a lot of work to do. There's no question. 
because it's not just Arab Americans, it's not just youth voters. This is a highly divisive issue within the Democratic coalition. Right. But it's something that he's doing. Whereas I think the fissure over Trump with these like the Haley voters, the moderates, the independents, everyone, but who's not, who's still part of the Republican Party, but not part of the Trump devotees. They -hmm. don't like him because of who he is. You know, they don't like how he talks and how he acts and the crimes he does and the women he assaults (laughs) and like all that kind of thing. That is not changeable. Right. And that is what we saw in 2020. And then as is as in now, like, I can't believe we got another one of those freaking pivot stories from the New York Times. It's like almost farcical. But, you know, that's why we keep getting these, because the theory of the case is, well, then Trump just needs to alter that behavior that people don't like. And he won't be like hemorrhaging support that he'll need in a general election anymore. I think we can pretty conclusively say, if nothing else, he is not able to do that. You know, most of us are only able to kind of pretend to be something we're not for a limited amount of time. And his shelf life is shorter than most people's because he's been doing and saying whatever he wants for what almost 80 years and you can't really teach an old dog new tricks it seems that that self uh control lasts as long as that one speech after iowa when he was gracious for like 10 minutes and then went to attack nikki haley's soldier husband so you know it's just i we just like keep relitigating these democratic concerns. And in some ways that makes sense because the people who are really worried Biden are going to lose are really worried about losing our country as we know it, right? Like the stakes are a lot bigger on that side than they are uh, for for Republicans, even though you, you have some amount of Republicans who, you know, have kind of deluded themselves into thinking a similar thing. But as much as Biden's got issues to address before the election and nobody's saying he doesn't, God, Trump is coming in as a weak front runner, you know, and and then it's crazy thing to say about someone who's won nearly every delegate. But I think it's just unquestionably true. He's having trouble amassing the groups that he's going to need to win in the general election. And we know because we've seen this movie before, right? That's what happened in 2020. You can't win a general with just your base. And he's not really doing anything so far to expand beyond the what appeals to that, you know, 35%. I think, you know, you, you, you made this point that he, you know, he cannot be who, not, he cannot not be who he is. And that is a, that is a fact about almost everybody. I think there's even an additional thing with him. And that is that he is less able to not be who he is now than he was in 2016. And that is part of that's part of age. It's, you know, one of, we tend to have this kind of binary, you know, fit as a fiddle, good to go versus dementia. But but in our own experiences of life, we all know that that's not really how it works. There are people who have, you know, uh, a cognitive deterioration that means they cannot live full lives anymore. But people change as they age. And one change that many people have is they become disinhibited. And, you know, look, uh, Donald Trump's been seriously disinhibited since he was a young man, <laughs> right? So it's not, this is not a, this is not a new thing. You know, disinhibition is sort of his brand, but you can, one of the things that I have tried to make sense of over the last couple of years is, I mean, he is much more feral 
and ragged and wild today than he was in 2016. And even in 2020, you, you just, it helps to see this if you look at some old stuff, right? He's much, much more like that. You, 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 one of the things that I was always struck by is that, and this was one of his huge assets in 2016, is that he was clearly having fun. He was having so much fun. He was having a great time. And basically, his great time ended a few weeks before he was sworn in in 2017. He hated being president, hated it. He was miserable and angry. And, you know, the whole psychic drama of his presidency was he worked hard to be elected president. And what he won was everybody loving him and being nice to him and doing anything he said. And that was not how it worked out. And people were mean to him. His enemies went after him and they found things and they, and they made the whole thing miserable. So <laughs> he was no longer happy, right? That's clear. And I think if we just kind of look at the last decade, we can see that very clearly. And what I, when I say that in the last couple of years, I was, I was having a hard time kind of making sense what was going on. I was trying to sense, is he just really fucking pissed because he's in a lot of legal trouble? And his business is kind of on the ropes? Or is he just, again, undergoing a kind of a age-related disinhibition where he, he kind of can't keep it in line? And I think it's both. Because I, I wouldn't want to be facing all of these... I mean, if you, I think those of us who really don't like the guy look at it as, you know, if he wins the presidency, all of these problems just go away. And he will have cheated accountability in a way that is very hard to stomach and accept. And that is true. If he does not win the presidency, he's fucked. He's really fucked because all of the supposed wins he has had in these cases are only delay. They're only delay. And, you know, just uh, a short while before we started recording, he went into the court in New York with a hundred million dollar bond, you know, to put up to appeal his New York verdict. And he basically, and he, but what he owes is 450 million. And maybe they've, I don't know what's going to happen there, but like, that's not a good position. And he said, his lawyer said, he's going to have to start selling stuff under duress to come up with this money. And I mean, you know, I'm sure they can dig a little deeper, but I think they're telling the truth. He doesn't have $500 million. And he, and there's no one who's going to say, oh, yeah, you're good for it. <laughs> I'll loan you 500 million. No way. So these are bad things. And so my, my point is, of course he's mad. You know, you'd be mad too. You probably wouldn't have done the things that got him to this place. But of course he's mad and he can't, he, he can't, um, he can't control it as much as he used to be able to, and he couldn't control it much then either. So not only can he not, not be himself, can he not pivot to being presidential, as we said in that kind of, that old cliche, he's less able to pivot now than he was in 2016. 
Yeah, I mean, Eugene Carroll Tower coming coming soon, seems like. Well, speaking of Eugene, one thing is that if he does not get this bond in, New York State and the person of Tish James can go in and just start confiscating things. Yeah. <laughs> like taking things, like taking prop like taking property, like really, like not like now, it's not that she can just kind of walk over to Trump Tower today and make it like Tish Tower, but like <laughs> it that's how it works. He owes the state that much money and he can only freeze them being able to start taking stuff by putting up the bond. So things get Things get serious pretty quick. Which, again, is so funny to me that, like, throughout all of his cases, his tactic has been just, like, full-throated hostility towards the judge, other than Eileen Cannon, who I think he pretty much recognizes is on his legal team. But it's like, maybe you don't want to, like, piss off the person who, when it comes time to pay the piper, decides whether or not you get to stay having to cough up half a billion dollars or not. It's funny. That's what, you know, when when he had that thing where he stood up and just started attacking the judge actually Mm -hmm. in the courtroom. It it drove me crazy because there were all these people saying, oh, he got exactly what he wanted. Trump pulled a fast one on the judge. The judge was humiliated. And I was thinking like, why, why, do, you, why do you give him that? Like, I don't see it that way. First of all, most normal people don't like that. Like yeah. you're up there like raging at a judge and like, like that's whatever. But also like you don't want to rage at the judge. The judge has a lot of power. Like, I think the judge is going to have the last laugh, right? <laughs> so kind of like, you know, okay, good. Go for it, dude. Call the judge a a pervert and a loser and, I mean, you know, see how that works out for you. It's like abusing the ref and then getting ejected from the game and being like, I, I got the upper hand, though. It's like, did you? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, um, and, that, and, and so that's the point that, I mean, he's all in on the presidency here. He's oh, yeah. gotta win. He's gotta win. Anyway, right. I guess that's 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 this that is this episode of uh, quality content on the mm-hmm. Josh Marshall podcast. Maybe we will have a little more on the ongoing drama of these two sort of notional presidential primary campaigns. But one way or another, we will be back with you next week for another episode, and we will see you then. Yep. See you then. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader